Please rise as you are able for the reading of today's from Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Yet you still have a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Linda, for reading our lesson, and welcome to all of you. It is so good to be in God's house with you on this second Sunday in February. Uh, a sleepy, rainy Sunday morning and a reflective time for us to be together in worship and in fellowship. It is a, a great joy to be with you. Uh, if you have been with us since early January, you know that we're still in the midst of this series on Revelation called Defying Gravity. And what we're doing together is really through two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3, we're doing kind of a close-up on the seven churches of Asia Minor, which today would be Western Turkey. These are faith communities, not unlike our own community, that is struggling to live out their faith in a culture that ha has increasingly become intolerant of their confession, that is, first century Asia Minor. What you know as historians is you know that the Greco-Roman world in which the gospel was born was polytheistic in their culture, in their religious views. In other words, they believed in many kinds of gods. And so in that culture, this idea of monotheism, one God, is suspect among the leaders in the community. To be sure, as Christ followers, we are exclusive in our confession, but we are inclusive in our conduct. I want to say that again. When we state together we believe in God's Son, Jesus, His only Son, our Lord, that is an exclusive confession, but the conduct of a Christian is inclusive. And by the way, that puts us at odds oftentimes with the world. We are called to live in the world, says John's gospel, but not of the world. And as we've said all along, that doesn't mean that we're anti-cultural. God didn't hate the world. God loves the world so much that He gave His only Son. We're not anti-cultural, but we are counter-cultural. In other words, the church is an alternative 
community that has a different set of values than the world, a different vision, a different mission. And thus the question for every generation since Jesus has ascended is simply this, how do we engage the culture without compromising the faith? This is the missional question of every generation, every church. I got a call recently from a young pastor uh, who's struggling. He's already become a little cynical, a little skeptical about the church with all of our pretense and all of our hypocrisy. And so I listened to him for a few minutes, and and then I, I finally found an opening, and I said to him, I know exactly what you mean. In fact, I said a few Sundays ago, I was processing down the center aisle at the 11 o'clock service. I was singing the opening hymn in all of my pomp and circumstance, in my robe and stole, and suddenly I was taken aback by my own pretentiousness to the point that before I came up the steps, I almost, I didn't have the courage to do it, but I almost stopped at the kneeling rail so that I could confess my sins before God before I came up here to tell you how to live your life. I said that to the young pastor. There was a pause, and then finally he said, okay, Dad, I get your point. (laughs) It's the truth, isn't it? One of the things that we've noted in all these churches, and now we're on church number five, we all have issues. We all have things that are worth commending, and we all have things that are worth critiquing. And so it is in the church in Sardis. I want to invite you to come for a few moments this morning. We're going to leave Brentwood Church for about 20 or 25 minutes. I'd like for us to go together as a congregation to the church in Sardis. I need to say ahead of time, I'm never quite sure what to call these people. In Ephesus, you refer to them as Ephesians. In Pergamon, you call them Pergamenes. In Sardis, let's just say sardines for all practical purposes. These people in Sardis, a sizable city, the population, 75,000. As you can see from the map geographically, it's about 40 miles southeast of Thyatira. And so it's on a road between Thyatira and Philadelphia. We'll get to Philadelphia next week. But did you know that in ancient days, six centuries before, that Sardis was noted as one of the most powerful and most affluent cities in the known world. In fact, in the 6th century BCE, Sardis was the capital of the old kingdom known as Lydia. That's what the area used to be called, Lydia, between 1200 BCE and about 546. So suffice it to say, for about six and a half centuries, Sardis was the capital of Lydia. You may remember the name King Croesus in the 6th century. Some of you used to say, as rich as Croesus. Under King Croesus, there were miners in the area who struck gold in the river Pactolus. And so they became very wealthy. You remember also Aesop, Aesop's fables. He was a Greek slave in the 6th century who wrote hundreds of tales. And one of them was about a king whose name was Midas. King Midas, who went down to that Pactolus River, and while drinking water, he discovered gold. That's where the term comes from, uh, the Midas touch. 
And he writes about this king who everything he touched turned to gold. And it sounds much like King Croesus. It was a rich place to live. The gold rush didn't start in California in 1849. It started in Sardis in the sixth century. It was a strategic location. It was the crossroads of five major highways in that area. It was on the western end of one of the most famous highways in ancient civilization. Its topography and climate was rich for agriculture. Indeed, you can note from this picture that the main section of town was built on what was called an Acropolis. You see the big rock. The dignitaries lived, much of the town lived on top of the mountain, which was 1,500 feet up with three sides of perpendicular rock walls, which the townsfolk thought were virtually impenetrable and unsaleable. And so they believed with a false sense of security that we're going to be here forever. Twice in their history, they were ransacked by those who scaled the mountain by night when they were unexpected. When they were no longer looking, they felt safe and they fell for enemy attack. It was a, it was a prime spot to start a church. And apparently from what we've read, the church at Sardis had a really good start. Numbers were good. Attendance at all three services was good. The offerings were favorable. People were tithing. There were baptisms, not quite like this morning, but every Sunday there were baptisms, people joining the church, a lot of programs, a lot of announcements in the bulletin. They could go on for 10 minutes in the worship service. There was a lot of activity. But we all know, don't we, that activity doesn't necessarily translate into vitality. It's interesting to me that usually John, who's writing on behalf of Christ here, begins with a commendation, but there is none to give to the church at Sardis. In fact, John the prophet saves his harshest rebuke of the seven churches for the church at Sardis. Listen to what he says. I know your deeds. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now, that's not exactly the kind of letter you wish to receive from your pastor, is it? That word reputation is an interesting word. We use it quite often, don't we? More often, I've noticed that when we're talking, we use that word in a rather negative sense. Like when you say, well, he, she has kind of a reputation. That's not really a compliment. The word reputation has more to do with image, really, doesn't it? It's about appearance, or it's a general assessment or assumption of a particular person or entity or business or organization, and they all have reputations. For example, some of you came early this morning, and you came to the Red Cross, didn't you? The Red Cross is here today. We're not only giving our praise and our finances, we're giving our blood today. And the Red Cross has a reputation for compassion. UMCOR, United Methodist Commission on Relief, has a reputation in the world that when there's a tragedy, when there's a crisis, they are first on the scene. They have a reputation for giving aid. The Boy Scouts of America, today is Scout Sunday. They served 
uh, in our, uh, as ushers at 850. They have a reputation for building young leaders. I said last week, the Nashville weathermen have a reputation. I call it false prophecy. The New England Patriots have a reputation. Now, I don't want to brag, but I predicted it last week. It's not bragging if it's true. Everybody has one. Socrates said the way to gain a good reputation is to endeavor to be what you desire to appear. That's interesting, isn't it? To be what you desire to appear. Henry Ford said you can't build a reputation on what you're going to (laughs) do, but what you do. I read this week a CEO, a 21st century CEO said, a brand for a company is like a reputation for a person. You earn reputation by trying to do hard things well. It's true. We all have them. Organizations, businesses, youth groups, even churches have reputations. I wonder what ours is. I've discovered most of the time when I say uh, I'm one of the pastors at Brentwood Church, people will say, oh, that's the big church. Yes, that's how we're… Oh, that's the church with the dome. Or this one you hear all the time. Oh, that's the church across the street from the (laughs) Chick-fil-A. I have a dream, a vision for this church that one day the Chick-fil-A will be the Chick-fil-A across the street from the church. (laughs) We all have reputations. Ephesus had a reputation. Everybody said they're orthodox, but they're not very loving. Pergamum had a reputation. They're loving, but they're not very orthodox. I wonder what the reputation of Brentwood is. Well, I thought you might ask, and so this past week I went to our Facebook page. Have you been to our Facebook page? You can vote on the reputation of the church like this, one or the other. You see something you like, see something you don't like, and so we're keeping score. I don't know if you know that or not, but we keep score of what people say, not by name always. Some of you choose to leave your name, and that's all right as well. We have a score of 4.8 out of 5 point. Now, that's not bad. A, A minus maybe, not bad. But I noticed when I was scanning through in the comments that there's, there's a criticism in, in one of the comments, uh, someone maybe about a year and a half ago did not have a good experience with us and didn't find us to be as friendly as we said we were. I wanted to erase it. I wanted to get rid of it. But we're not going to do that. We're going to let it stay there as a reminder that everyone who walks through that door must know that they are loved by you and by God and by me. So that even when the sermon is off a little or when the choir misses the downbeat, the one thing that they will know for sure when they walk out is that they are needed and that they are loved. We come to church not simply to get our cup filled. We come to fill somebody else's cup. And when you do that, 
it fills yours. Sardis had a reputation. On their Facebook, they were a perfect five-point. But reputations can be misleading, and theirs was. I have discovered that there's something more important than what people think. There is something more critical than what others think about us, and that is what Christ himself thinks about us. That's important, and he knows. In every letter I know, says the Lord. And sometimes reputation is not reality. And when those two don't match, you may not see it, but God sees it. And God has a way of bringing it to our attention. I know your works, he says. I know you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, he says to Sardis. In other, thing, in other words, things are not always what they seem, are they? Sometimes reputation is a shadow, but it's not necessarily reality. There's a word for this. Theologians would have said that the Sardesians were nominalists. You know that word? Comes from a word name, nom means name. It means that they were Christian in name only. In other words, it said so on the sign but the contents of the package didn't match. They had the form of religion without the power. Apparently, Sardis had come to terms with its pagan environment, but by so doing, they became a mirror image of the world, and they lost their salt. Says one English theologian, Sardis was the perfect model of tepid and inoffensive Christianity, civil religion. They had the appearance without the authenticity, image without substance. And John says to Sardis, you're dead. It's like Jesus in Mark 11 verse 20 when he was headed to Jerusalem to the cross and he saw that fig tree and he pointed it out He said, it looks alive, but it's dead. It's got leaves, but there's no fruit. And so it was in Sardis. I was thinking about today, and so I thought it might be helpful if I went over to Sardis this past week, and I did. I spent half my time this week in Brentwood and half of it in Sardis in my study. I went over to the morgue because I wanted to see for myself. I wanted to view the church. And so I went over to the coroner's office, and sure enough, there was the gurney. There was a sheet covering the remains. And the pathologist pulled back the sheet so that I could identify the body. And sure enough, it was the church. She was dead as a doornail. I asked the coroner if he had finished the autopsy, and he said yes. And then I asked him something maybe I shouldn't have asked. I said, mind if I take a look? And he said, well, you know, the HIPAA laws and all that. But since you seem to be the next of kin, since you are a man of the cloth, go ahead. And he handed me the death certificate. I read it carefully. 
And beneath all the governmental regulations, all the gobbledygook red tape, I looked down to the section that said cause of death, and there it was in bold type. You know what it said? Complacency. Complacency? It wasn't an act of violence. It wasn't persecution from the culture. It wasn't even an internal fight in the body. It wasn't external tension or internal tension. It wasn't a stroke or a heart attack. It was just complacency. Self-satisfaction killed the church in Sardis. When I saw the remains, I thought of something Benjamin Mays once said, great civil rights leader who said, the tragedy of life is not found in failure, it's found in complacency. It's not in us doing too much, but too little. It's not that we live above our means, it's that we live below our capacity. It's not failure, it's not shooting too high, it's aiming too low. That's the tragedy of life. And so there's no commendation in Sardis. It's heartbreaking. But John concludes on a note of hope. Apparently, according to Revelation 3, this is a death from which we can recover. In fact, Christ gives a prescription for recovery, for resurrection. Here it is, five imperatives. Wake up, strengthen, remember, obey, repent. That's the prescription for a sleeping church. When I saw the prescription, you know what, I, I went back in my mind to the prodigal, Luke 15, and I thought, to, that, that's his story. A young man lived on a farm, had all that he could wish for, had a relationship with his father, but he, he went to sleep. He became complacent. He had amnesia, and he forgot who he was. And he winds up leaving home. He goes out to a far country where he starts making sausage, which is about as low as a Jewish boy can go. And suddenly, he smells the pigs, he sees the stains, he strengthens his waning faith, and he remembers his father. And he obeys the nudge in his heart, and he gets up and he repents. In other words, he does a U-turn. He stops going pigsty way, and he goes back to his father. And this is my favorite part. When his dad saw him coming, he broke out into a trot, and he came out with this new white robe, a new set of clothes, a new suit, and he wrapped it around his stained boy, and he said, this, my son, was lost but now is found he was dead and he's alive. That's the remedy for a lost boy and that's the remedy for a sleeping church. Wake up, strengthen what remains, remember who you are, obey that voice 
and turn around. And when you do, something happens. Your heart starts beating again. There are vital signs that are coming back and dry bones begin to rattle. And all of a sudden, reputation becomes resuscitated into reality. John ends the passage with talk of clothing. Last word. Yet you still have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, and they will walk with me. The mention of soiled clothing here reminds us of a custom in Sardis. Remember, they were among those like Thyatira who believed that they were the first to dye wool. They had manufacturing. When a person came to worship in Sardis at pagan shrines, they were expected to wear clean clothes, white robe, Sunday best. To show up at the temple or at a shrine with dirty laundry would have been a disgrace to a pagan god and to themselves. But John here is not talking about literal clothing. He's talking about metaphorical clothing. He's talking about the character of a disciple. It reminds me of Colossians 3, doesn't it, you? As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with meekness and patience, and above all, friends, put on love. Clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the wardrobe that the world needs. And this is the inventory that God gives. This is the attire of the church that we must wear and Christ makes a promise for those who are clothed that we will walk with him, that our names will not be erased from the ledger, and that he will acknowledge our name before the Father. Let me illustrate, and I'm finished. I was reading an article the other day about a new trend in fashion. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called athleisure. You heard that word? Athleisure. This is clothing designed for working out, and it's now being worn in other settings. It's being worn in some of your offices, in the workplace, in schools, and it's even, I noticed this morning, sometimes worn in the church. These gym clothes are becoming a larger part of our wardrobes, and so, so that people will be ready to work out at lunch or during the day or when they leave the office, they put on these clothes and wear them all day. The market is now somewhere north of $100 billion for athleisure clothing. But the article said the reality is most people are just wearing it. They're not actually working out in it. In other words, the athletic part of athleisure is an aspiration with no perspiration. <laughs> the problem is we want the workout look without the workout practice. And the brand name for some of that clothing is called Sardis. 
It's not enough to look the part. We have to live the life so that appearances become authenticity and reputation becomes reality to the glory of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.